This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and this morning for Catherine Cruz. One month ago today, Lydia Woodland celebrated her 94th birthday, and she was looking forward to celebrating at least a few more. She was in really good health. I mean, the last time she went to the doctor, the doctor said, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. you you'll probably live to be at least 100. Sadly, that was not to be. That was Lydia's daughter, Rebecca Woodland. She arrived home in Honolulu yesterday after attending her mother's funeral in Canada. Lydia Woodland died of COVID-19 on November 9th. HPR's Savannah Harriman pote spoke with Rebecca this morning about the theme of her mother's life. <laughs> Miracles, I think. <laughs> and she was born in Siberia during Stalin's regime, and her family escaped. It's an amazing story. Uh, James Michener would have fun with it if he were still around. She was taken across the frozen Amur River by horse-drawn sleigh, and that's how the family escaped. It went from Russia into China, Manchuria, China, at the time, and settled, and then they had to find a country that would take them. Eventually, they were able to get Chinese passports, and they were in the last boat of immigrants allowed into the United States before the immigration doors were shut for a long, long time. So a whole series of miracles, and, you know, that was kind of a story of her life. She definitely was a, a woman of perseverance, and she was a great mom. We didn't always appreciate it, of course, when we were kids, but as we grew a little older, we really, really appreciated her way of teaching us, for example, and her resourcefulness. She taught me how to sew. She taught me the basic principle of cooking, which is interesting because she wasn't a very good cook because of severe malnutrition as a young child. She, her, her sense of smell and her taste buds weren't functioning properly, but she knew the principles of cooking. So she taught me basic things like how to make a, a wonderful gravy and salad dressing and how to cook beans. And another thing about her is she, she was way smarter than people thought, way smarter. She almost had a, what's the word, prescient, being able to see outcomes way before anyone would even dream of, you know, how something was going to turn out. And also she, she was capable of change. And that's really something for someone in their 90s. She's feisty. Like, nobody was going to tell her what to do. Her bones were made out of rebar, I swear. I mean, she'd fall on ice, and she'd get up and brush herself off and say, well, that was dumb. She always rebounded from everything. So we expected her to rebound from this, too, because that's what Mom did. <laughs> but she didn't, and um, it was very sad. But we, we just had a wonderful time celebrating her life. I'm thankful that we had her as long as we did. Lydia Woodland, one of the more than 5 million people worldwide who have lost their lives to COVID-19 since the start of this pandemic. Earlier this month, the Central Union Church of Honolulu marked All Saints Day with a ceremony honoring each life lost due to the coronavirus here in Hawaii. The church filled its front lawn with chairs, one for each person, and rang the church bells 916 times. Reverend Brandon Duran of Central Union helped to organize the ceremony. He felt it was important for people to be able to visualize the scale of this loss. All Saints Day is a Christian tradition of remembering and honoring those who've gone before us, those who have passed. And so last year, as we were thinking about this day that was coming up, All Saints Day in, in 2020, we felt like there was a need to just name and, and highlight those who have gone before us because of COVID, those who have died from, from COVID-19, and that it was important to, to take it out of the realm of just a daily count of those who've passed away and make it more visceral, tangible, more visible. And so we, we decided to get chairs, and thankfully we had plenty of chairs to, to kind of on, on a spur of a moment, it, we, didn't, we didn't have a lot of time ahead of time. The idea kind of came up late for us, and so we quickly pulled together some volunteers and put out, I think it was 238 chairs in 2020. And so this year, as the day approached again, we decided it was important to do this again. And it was important for us uh, for a couple of reasons. One in that, you know, myself and, I, and I'm sure others want this pandemic to be behind us. I, I, want, it, I want it to be in the rearview mirror. I want it to be a, a story that I can tell future generations, being in the middle of it is hard and continuing to 
navigate it is just exhausting. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one familiar with pandemic fatigue. And with that feeling, the urge I know I feel is to want to move through this as quickly as possible. But I know I can't. I know that it's still very much a part of our lives. It's still very much affecting the lives of of everyone, um, and some in some really deep and profound ways. And so we, we knew it was important to, to do this event again, to once again visibly and, and viscerally uh, lift up and name and remember and honor those who've passed because their lives mattered. Their, their, they, their lives were a gift to, they blessed so many. They had so many loved ones. And there's a part of me that feels like just rushing through the pandemic and wanting it to be over feels like we're forgetting what we've lost uh, and who we've lost. And so this year, as we were preparing for it, we quickly came to the realization that we, we didn't have uh, enough chairs. And, and for us, this became more than just a logistical matter. This became a, a symbolic matter where it made it very apparent that we can't do this alone. We can't, we can't navigate this alone. We can't carry this alone. We have to, we have to do it with others. That's the only way we're going to be able to, to manage. And so we started to reach out to other churches with the first thought of, well, maybe if we get enough churches and they all have, you know, chairs in their fellowship halls and folding chairs in their sanctuaries or whatever, and we can all pull together. And in that way, we do this as a, as a wider ohana, as a wider community. And even then, it became as we were contacting folks and, and realizing, oh, even if we pulled all, everything we had, we still don't have enough. Um, and that was sobering for a lot of reasons. And so fortunately, one of, uh, one of the folks on the planning team had the great idea of calling around. And so Hawaiian Rental um, was gracious in donating enough chairs to, to have one chair for each life that uh, was lost during the pandemic. Another member of our planning team knew he could get the dates of, of when people died. So that way to try to even personalize it even more. So we had on the front lawn of the church uh, 916 chairs. Each chair had a date on it of when that person had, had died. And we had in the center, we had the, the blue chairs of our church that were the number of chairs that, that, that had been set up in 2020. And then all around it were the gray chairs from Hawaiian Rental that, that were the hundreds of lives lost since then. And so then that day on All Saints Day, November 1st, the, these different churches, the pastors, as well as uh, several members of the Buddhist community and Buddhist priests were gracious enough to come and stand and be a, a ministry of presence uh, with us in that moment uh, together, all of us together. Um, and at noon on that day, uh, we rang the, the carol on the chimes, one chime for each life lost. And, and last year in 2020 when we did this, you know, it was one chime and a brief pause and then another and it took about 15 minutes, and I remember how, how profound that felt, just hearing one, one, one. And the, the 15 minutes, I remember sitting with a, a family who's, uh, who had lost a husband and a father, um, and it just it, it hit deeply. And then this year, doing that again, and now, now it, takes, it took nearly an hour uh, to do each chime for the over 900 lives lost. And... Uh, that was, that was very overwhelming. Reverend Brandon Duran of Central Union Church. Hawaii passed a dark milestone this past weekend. 1,000 deaths statewide due to COVID. This story was produced by The Conversation's Savannah Harriman Pope. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, 
Ugahuulabi, Uhavaiti. All aboard for today's Backyard Quiz. Later in the show, we're setting sail towards the northwestern Hawaiian Islands with the crew of exploration vessel Nautilus. There's plenty to pack before a long voyage. Life jacket, sunscreen, probably a map or two, and of course, snacks. But there is one item we'll have to leave behind on that food front. Bananas. Many boats prohibit bananas, even products with bananas in them, from being brought on board. Now, this rule comes from a long-held seaman superstition that bananas are bad luck. Since at least the 18th century, bananas have been blamed for everything, from poor fish catches to mechanical issues, even storms. But how does this superstition hold up under scientific inquiry? Well, one reason bananas may have gotten a bad rap is they release a gas that causes other fruit to ripen more quickly. So if bananas are stored in closed spaces, such as in the cargo hold of a ship, say, for long periods of time, they can cause other produce to spoil. Now, for today's quiz, we're looking for the name of that bad luck banana gas. You can call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing, nareedhawaii.com. Governor Ige says he'll announce looser COVID restrictions this week. He's got a news conference scheduled for later this afternoon, along with the county mayors. Uh, so what might we expect? Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell joins us this morning, talking about this in the reality check. Blaze, uh, so the mayor of Honolulu actually got a jump on the governor this morning, right? Hey there, Bill. Yeah, Mayor Rick Blangiardi is actually in a press conference right now announcing, lifting some restrictions on Oahu. Earlier, he said that the war against COVID is not over and lifting of these restrictions is about getting on the other side of this disease. Now, what exactly is the mayor lifting? So he said that at 11.59 p.m. on November 30th, so basically on December 1st, uh, the, the city's going to be lifting capacity for all large events, both indoor and outdoor. All of those events will also be allowed to serve food and drinks so long as they follow the Safe Access Oahu guidelines for doing so. Um, there's also more options for unvaccinated individuals to visit restaurants. If they're not vaccinated, they can pre- they can present uh, a negative test result, and they should be able to be let into any restaurants or indoor activities. Uh, Blangiardi is also going to be dropping contact tracing requirements at those restaurants. So, you know, those little cards or forms you need to fill up before you sit at a table. He's saying that that's no longer going to be needed. Uh, Some other changes are coming for gyms as well. They'll be allowed to operate at full capacity, but from the guidelines, it sounds like you'd still need to be vaccinated to go to an indoor gym. Uh, Speaking of that 1 p.m. press conference, Blangiardi has asked the governor to, you know, make a ruling on this six-foot distancing in restaurants decision. Now, although the, you know, capacity for restaurants has basically been lifted, for a few weeks or a few months now, they're really limited in how many people they can have because of the six-foot social distancing requirement that you need between tables. And, you know, people like the Hawaii Restaurant Association and other business groups have pushed back against that because it's essentially, you know, limiting to you your restaurant to 50% or below. So we'll see what the governor has to say later on today. That starts at 1 p.m. Joining the governor will also be Jason Chang, CEO of the Queen's Health System, and Greg Maples of the Hawaii Restaurant Association. Yeah, it's an interesting collection. It also sort of underlines what you were talking about just there, this ongoing dynamic throughout the pandemic of the, the mayors on the one hand, the governor on the other hand, and sometimes... Sometimes they're in sync uh, all the way through on some of these restrictions, regulations, and, uh, and sometimes they haven't been. That's been the case this entire time, Bill. I mean, we've seen it 
time and again whenever there's new announcements either the governor I, I, either a mayor or in certain instances lieutenant governor josh green would preempt <laughs> the governor on the same day he's set to make an announcement and you know it's part it's part of the dynamics and politics here that goes on and we've seen it in other states too Hawaii is one of 23 states and, you know, Washington that are still under emergency orders. And in a lot of states, in every state, actually, state legislatures have introduced bills to try to limit their governor's emergency powers. Some have actually accomplished that and passed new laws that would let the state lawmakers essentially decide, you know, when a governor can, when a governor should uh, end any emergency orders. And of course, here in Hawaii, that was uh, that that idea went down to defeat at the end of the legislative session. It did, but we'll probably see it revived next session. House Speaker Scott Psyche told us earlier this month that he plans to introduce a similar bill that would allow the legislature to nullify part or all of the governor's emergency powers. Yesterday, Ige panned that idea. He doesn't like uh, lawmakers telling him what to do. His administration has opposed it yesterday. He said that the legislature should not overreach and tie the hands of the executive. So we'll see this play out when session starts in January. And uh, a bit sooner than that, we will see this afternoon in terms of what happens with that, uh, the six-foot distancing with the, uh, with the restaurants, as you say, uh, Mayor Blanjardi, as we're on the air, uh, talking about that and his request of the governor. Uh, and you can hear uh, more of that. Uh, Reporter Blaze Level with uh, today's reality check. Uh, thanks, Blaze. Thank you. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org, and you can stay tuned for developments from the Governor's News Conference and an update on that later today on All Things Considered. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, it's easy to see the deep differences between the U.S. and China. But what if we told you there are more parallels between the two countries than we'd like to admit? Extreme inequality, cronyism, systemic financial risk, excessive materialism, ecological crisis stemming from overconsumption. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with new tours evoking divinity and sustaining Hawaii, exploring historical context and cultural relevance of works across the museum. Registration at honolulumuseum.org. One of the many financial impacts of the COVID-19 crisis has been on housing. It's not just the impact on homelessness and affordable housing. Many homeowners have had trouble with their mortgages. There's a pilot program underway to help homeowners on Hawaii Island and Kauai. And HPR's Casey Harlow has been following that and is here with more on that story, Case. Yes. Hi. Uh, yes, the Homeowner Assistance Fund is a brand new program in partnership with the state, uh, counties of Hawaii and Kauai, and the a nonprofit called Hawaii Community Lending uh, got about five million dollars to start off this uh, pilot program, and it's only open for roughly two hundred uh, homeowners who make about one hundred fifty percent of the area median income in those counties for twenty twenty one owner-occupants, and have experienced financial hardship caused by the pandemic. A lot of hope that this program will help uh, these homeowners actually catch up on their past due mortgage payments. And uh, there's also another option that they could catch up on their payments and also possibly reduce their monthly 
uh, mortgage payments as well, but that would have to be stretched out to the original loan term. You know, but it's interesting. A lot of the basis of this program is it's such a critical thought to get people before they start to slip um, in terms of financial distress. And a lot of this program seems to be aimed at just that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I spoke with Jeff Gilbreth of the uh, executive director of uh, HCL, Hawaii Community Lending, and he said that Something like this was in uh, effect, I guess, back in the Great Recession, but Hawaii didn't really see any federal funds to help homeowners and also the servicers, the mortgage lenders. And this is all about um, helping the local housing uh, and keeping people in homes uh, and just the underpinning of the local economy as well, just to keep everybody balanced and in place at this point. Uh, But now... Since Hawaii didn't get anything like that back in 2008, uh, we are certainly seeing it now, and it's definitely foresight of the federal government to understand that this there's a lot more at play with this uh, global um, economic crisis. And another theme in terms of that bringing together state, local, nonprofit, uh, and and also with a way to help direct some of this federal money, because that's such a a key portion of this as well. If something's approved at the federal level, how does that get through down to the community level to actually help the people who need that? Exactly. And Hawaii Community Lending has uh, been doing this for um, about a few decades at this point, and they are very experienced and have uh, knowledge of the local scene as far as the mortgage servicers and how uh, financial systems work. Actually, they are accredited by the U.S. uh, Treasury Department, and that's kind of one of the um, selling points, if you could call it that, of how they were able to partner with the counties and the state to launch this program as well. And uh, just also, just to backtrack, uh, there are some forms that homeowners will need to have uh, in order to apply. And Jeff Gilbreth gives us a quick um, kind of synopsis of like what you would need if you want are interested in applying. The documents we're going to need are 30 days most recent pay stubs for all jobs, 30 days most recent bank account statements for all accounts, 30 days most recent asset statements for all accounts. If folks are receiving any public benefits, we need statements there and two years of most recent federal tax returns. And also uh, the partnerships with uh, HCL and also the lenders and also the state. Uh, HCL is pretty much the middleman operating everything here, but they have a, they need agreements with these national uh, servicers. They have some already in place. Uh, Freedom Mortgage is one of them. But they also need the help from local banks and local uh, servicers as well. And so they're also asking for help in that respect. So the Homeowner Assistance Fund requires that mortgage servicers execute an agreement with Hawaii Community Lending. This agreement has been negotiated by the federal government with the nation's largest banks. It's been reviewed by their legal teams. We currently have Freedom Mortgage on as a participating servicer, and we have a handful of others that are looking to sign on to this agreement. But we really encourage mortgage servicers, especially our local banks, our local credit unions, to step up and execute those agreements with us so their homeowners can have access to these funds and essentially take care of the troubled assets on their balance sheet so they can continue to lend in community. And uh, if there are any uh, banks out there that are interested in participating and striking an agreement with Hawaii Community Lending, or even if there are homeowners who have more questions about how this program works or if they need help, uh, you can go online at HawaiiCommunityLending.com or even their sister agency, uh, Hawaii, Hawaiian Community Assets at HawaiianCommunity.net. You know, it's so important also to keep an eye on these pilot programs as they are put out there and track what is successful, what actually gains traction and helps people stay in their homes. Yeah, exactly. And so this whole pilot program is uh, pretty small right now. Again, roughly 200 homeowners will be helped, but Jeff says that they anticipate that they will tap in to an additional $50 million that will expand this program statewide and help homeowners throughout the state. It's a start. Yep. Casey Harlow on that story and on a number of stories. You can follow his stories online at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Thanks, kids. Thanks.
On this Thanksgiving week, you might be thinking about food, although maybe not Korean food. But our next guest credits Korean food with transforming her life. Africa Yoon lives on Oahu. She's originally from Cameroon, came to the United States as the six-year-old daughter of the U.N. ambassador from Cameroon and a global activist, her mother. Among her other accomplishments, she's run from New York to Chicago and across Europe and parts of Africa raising money for charity. She's also just published a book called The Korean, Single and Obese, Then Kimchi Changed Everything. She wasn't always heavy, but at one point a number of years ago, she found herself working hard, eating without thinking, and realized that she'd put on more than 100 pounds over five years. A turning point for her came in the form of an interaction with an elderly Korean woman at a Korean bakery, where Africa was trying a baked delight with cream inside, and she was momentarily forgetting her diplomatic upbringing. I took a sample of this product, and Bill, let me tell you, all diplomacy was out of the window. (laughs) I was eating this bread in a very undiplomatic fashion. With cream was all over, and I, I, I forgot that I was in public. And all of a sudden, I hear somebody say, you are too fat. And I remember the uh. I always remember the uh with this woman. She always ends her word with uh. Too fat. And so I turn around, and I'm like, you know, ego first. I was like, who's talking to me? And what is going on? Like, who is insulting me in public? And I turn around, and I see this very tiny Korean grandmother. So I'm trying to swallow my pride and everything. She started to also shout at the woman who was giving me the sample. Like, why do you, like, she was, they were talking in Korean, but, you know, some things don't need translation. Right. Why are you giving Um, this to this woman? Right. Yeah, like, why are you giving this fat lady bread? You know, Mm. (laughs) you know, why are you giving her bread? Take this bread back. Like, she was actually trying to, she took the bread that I had was negotiated. She was trying to give it back to her. Even the bakery lady was like, oh, la, la, this lady is on another level. And it starts to ring some bells because, you know, African elders do. They're not always that diplomatically correct. Some of mm-hmm. them can even be fat and tell you that you're too fat at the same time. And so I was like, acting like a bit like my family. Like she's acting like uh, this is beyond insult. Like insult, you give it. You throw some more, and maybe you leave. You don't start trying to help the person that you're insulting, right? So right. I was like, hmm, this is different. <laughs> this is starting to feel a little like I'm related to her. Um, why is she doing all this? And I was just observing all of this, and then she, then after giving back my bread, she started to walk away. And I said, excuse me. <laughs> I said, excuse me. Hello, me here. I said, it, my father always told me if you're uncomfortable, start to ask questions, mm. right? If you don't know what to say or whatever, diplomatic technique, you know, mm-hmm. ask questions. So I said to her, well, since you know what I sh- shouldn't eat, what do you think that I should, should eat? eat? And mm. she said, she said, Korean food. I described the moment as holy because there was a calming and because I also, I also understand that that woman must have been through a lot of things, you know. She could have been in Korean War. She could have, who knows. This is how she's showing love, I realize. Even ask any, any Korean, that, young Korean that you will talk to, will say, oh, my mama called me fat ten times. So I said, oh, based on my little movie in my mind, uh, you're showing me love. And what she said is true. I mean, if you look at me, she was wrong. I wasn't fat. I was... Obese. <laughs> that was a big of change. And, and so I, so she, when she had answered me, I asked another question. I said, well, can you help me? Do you think you can help me? And um, I said, well, you know, look, this is grocery store right here. Help me out. You know, show me. And she did. She did. She helped me. And, uh, and we went grocery shopping with each other that day and many Sundays after church thereafter, and in a year I had lost 110 pounds. Africa Yoon talking about how Korean food changed her life in her recently released memoir, The Korean, Single and Obese, Then Kimchi Changed Everything. Korean food also took her deeper into Korean culture, a path that eventually led her to marrying a Korean man, and both of them coming to Hawaii. Fast forwarding a bit, Mm -hmm. you you moved to Hawaii 
two years ago this month. What yes. br- what brought you here, and how has Hawaii played into your multicultural world? Oh, I love Hawaii so much. First of all, I'm so happy to be here, and um, I actually I, I belong to a gym in Manhattan, and there was a competition with Hawaiian Airlines to tell like your health story, and um, then you would win two tickets to Hawaii. And I was I had been married or, or at that time already, and I was even I was like pregnant, and uh, I told my story and I won. I mean I have a good story, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I we went to Maui, and while my husband and I were there, I was like having all these connections to Hawaii because it was reminding me of Cameroon. Hmm. My husband, who grew up in the Midwest, was having all these, like, bells going off, being exposed to Asian culture. We were seeing Koreans. He was having all this experience being with all with Asian culture. I was like, this is like Cameroon. Like, <laughs> this is like, oh, my gosh, mangoes. And da, 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 da. This is like my childhood. So we were both having these bells going off. And we said, wow, we, we could live here. This is so us, right? <laughs> so we said, okay, promise, we're going we're gonna to live in Hawaii one day. And I guess we didn't really have any plan. We just were like, wow, we actually feel home here. Like, we've got to live here, maybe when we're older or I don't know. And so we left, and, and, and that, was, that was six years ago. Immediately after that stretch in Hawaii came time in other places, from Busan in South Korea to Minnesota in the United States. And when she and her family did relocate here two years ago, she was grateful not only for her husband and herself, but also for her children. Going and getting mango from the tree, all those things. Like, I feel so at home here. In fact, I'm able to give my kids the African upbringing that I had growing up, starting in Cameroon that I've never been able, that I wouldn't have been able to do anywhere else. There's so much Cameroon stuff that I can give. And then Hawaii, then like my children have people with the whole hapa. My children actually, like I have a sense of self. I'm, I'm a black woman. I know who I am. I can be with, in a room of 1,000 Russians, Japanese, Korean, Italian, and with no one person and I'm very secure. I know who I am. So I don't need to have any particular person around me to be black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my children are, are so young. And so Hawaii is like, not only do they see like Asian people, and also they see black people, and we have black neighbors, um, but they see this mix of culture that looks like them, you know, the hair that looks like theirs, you know, all of these things. And so I'm just like so happy for them to be in Hawaiian culture. You know, they're learning Hawaiian language too. And it just is, it's just a beautiful thing for them to be able to be in Hawaii and, and be hapa. I mean, any, is there anywhere else better to be hapa than Hawaii? No. Africa Yoon, author of the just published memoir, The Korean, Single and Obese, Then Kimchi Changed Everything. Actor and fellow Oahu resident Daniel Day Kim is a fan, by the way. He did an Instagram post about the book. You can find out more about the book at the website, thekoreanbook.com. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This week, astronomer Christopher Phillips shares an update on the upcoming launch of the most powerful and most expensive space telescope ever constructed. Here's HPR's Dave Lawrence with your weekly Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. He's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. This week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be seen in the western sky till they set shortly before midnight. 
The moon this week is waning, becoming a mere crescent by week's end, and so conditions will be great for stargazing. And we have exciting news on the launch of a revolutionary space telescope. Yes, we are now one month away from the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is due for liftoff on December 18th from the European Space Agency spaceport in French Guiana. James Webb will be the most powerful space telescope ever constructed. It is also one of the most expensive, costing an eye-watering $9.8 billion. The liftoff will no doubt be one of the most hair-raising in spaceflight history, as there is a lot riding on the success of the launch and the telescope itself. Tell us a little bit about the science involved in this thing, Chris. Well, it's going to do everything from studying objects in our solar system to peering into the distant universe to answer those great cosmological questions. And of course, everything else in between. To say that it's going to be busy is a horrendous understatement. And this thing has probably got a little uh, setup time in store, huh, before they're doing real observation? Oh yeah, it sure does. The launch phase is just the first and arguably most risky part of the journey. But once in space, it will be propelled on a trajectory to a point in space called L1. L1 is what we called a Lagrangian point. This is a point in space where the gravitational forces between a planet and the sun are equal, and they make for a perfect vantage point from which to study the heavens. Now, could uh, if the Russians decide to blow something up up there that creates a bunch of debris, like that thing they recently did, is this thing going to be uh, jeopardized by that at all? Probably not. Thankfully, space radar is so good that we can track even the smallest pieces of space junk. So no doubt the launch has been timed to coincide with a gap in the cloud. And what is it, like a month-long journey to arrive in its, uh, its destination? It is, and a further six months of commissioning time. And L1 is about a million miles away, so it means if something on JWST breaks, <laughs> there's no fixing it. <laughs> so it better work. The last thing we need is a $9.8 billion paperweight orbiting the sun. It's Christopher Phillips. Good stuff this week. Thanks. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer. We keep it at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. For today's quiz, we're doing a little digging on a sailor's superstition that it's bad luck to bring bananas on boats. There are quite a few theories as to how bananas got such a bad rap. One is that banana crops often harbored poisonous spiders that could make crewmen deathly ill. The risk of a spider bite miles from shore certainly seems like a good reason to leave the bananas at home. In addition to being popular spider hideouts, bananas are also buoyant. If a ship sank at sea, its bananas would often float to the surface. So a mysterious swath of mid-sea bananas was often the first sign to other ships that something had gone horribly wrong. Our last banana impact, one you may have observed in your own kitchen. Bananas produce a gas which can cause other nearby fruit to ripen more quickly. If you keep your bananas too close, you could find yourself with a lot of spoiled fruit mid-voyage. What's the name of the gas? Ethylene. We've got a lot of response for that. Keep those bananas off my boat. Daniel Amato, the winner from Honolulu. That's today's quiz. If you've got one, you can send it to TalkBack at whitepublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Before we shift full gear into Turkey Day, we've got another smaller bird to celebrate, the Akea polaau. This rare honey creeper lives on Hawaii Island, and we've got its song for you today. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Akia polaau are large, bright yellow honeycreepers that act like woodpeckers. They use their strong lower bill to peck holes in the branches of trees. Then they use their long, curved upper bill to pry out the tasty insect larvae. There are less than 2,000 of these birds left, mainly because of habitat loss and mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. And nowadays their song can only be heard in high-elevation koa forests on the Big Island, 
where it's too cold for mosquitoes. In addition to controlling mosquitoes, planting koa forests would be a great way to increase populations of this very rare and important species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Welcome back to the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Lillian Zong. Now, last Monday, 43 staff and crew shipped out of Honolulu on board the exploration vessel Nautilus, and they were headed to Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. And the expedition's name, Lu'u'a Ea'a Hiki'ika Papaku, represents the journey to and the work in the Papaku or the ocean floor, which includes surveying and mapping seamounts and investigating macrobiology and deep sea rocks through the use of remotely operated vehicles, also called ROVs. I was able to connect with education coordinator Andy Collins and team leader Emil Petruncio on board the Nautilus on day four as they were 860 miles west of Honolulu. Here's Collins. We have arrived on our first dive site and we've almost finished mapping it and we'll probably put the ROV in the water later this afternoon. So we'll be live with our broadcast from the ROV and all the exciting science. Everybody's running around like crazy getting ready and first time human beings will ever see this part of the earth, ever. How exciting. Through these explorations, you guys are just able to uncover new information, new images, new geology. There is so much information mining going on, but Andy, what can you share about the journey so far? Tell us what it takes to get underway. Well, you know, preparation started years ago, identifying the locations, scientists putting in applications for coming out to do the work, getting all the food and gear on the ship. And we have people on here that are documentary crews, educators, cooks, captains, ROV pilots. We have geologists on board. We have experts in microbial biology of these deep sea communities. We have coral experts on board and mapping experts. And then we also have all the great crew that keeps the ship running and in top shape. And so it takes an army transiting almost three days to our destination. And during that time, we're preparing all the scientific gear also doing a lot of trainings with the people on board, cultural trainings about these protocols. As part of the management of Papahanaumokuakea, we have what we call our cultural working group that help to guide the management of this sacred and very important place. Hmm. So it's, it's quite an amazing all-star team. You can imagine what the dinner conversation like. It's absolutely fascinating. Wow, I'm imagining a lot, envisioning a lot, and tapping into pop culture and seeing you guys like a Star Trek expedition. Mm-hmm. It sounds, you know, you're self-contained, you're on this vessel, sounds like you have a tight-knit crew, and you all have the same goal to explore the underwater seamounts, basically going where no man has ever gone before. And team leader, Emil, you've worked with the Ocean Exploration Trust since 2013, As a part-time instructor in the Oceanography Department at the United States Naval Academy, you bring a lot of experience to the team. It was a really nice way to apply my training as a physical oceanographer. It was an opportunity that I didn't see coming, but, you know, I tell all my students and colleagues, keep your eyes and ears open for these opportunities, and when they arise, you know, go for it and stretch yourself, and I don't regret it for one moment. This is like a dream to be out here working with all of these 
specialties, these experts in various fields and coming with different age groups, different parts of the country all coming together to uh, focus on a mission. Hmm. And Andy, you are the education coordinator. How are you getting students involved? Yeah, well, I'm one of many educators on this expedition. We have quite a cadre of teachers from across the U.S. and also other educators with Ocean Exploration Trust that are on board. So I'm just one of the team here. And basically, people can sign up. Teachers can sign up for free on the NautilusLive.org website for free ship-to-shore interactions with the scientists and with the educators. And uniquely, for the first time ever, we are offering these interactions in Aloha, Hawaii, in Hawaiian language. So if you are a teacher out there and you're in immersion school or teach in Hawaiian, we have a, a fluent Hawaiian speaker on board, Kalama Ehu, and he would love to interact with your students. Basically, they're about half an hour, and you can talk to us on board, and we'll show you what's going on on the ship at that time and talk a little bit about the technology and tools that we use for this exploration. And I just have to throw in, if I could, that we have a local student on board, Kainalu Stewart from the University of Hawaii, part of our science team. He'll be logging our observations during our remotely operated vehicle dives. And he recently was selected as a finalist for a contest involving the use of geographic information systems to tell stories. And his story involved a group of Native Hawaiian scientists and community members traveling out to the monument earlier this year. Nice. And you're currently on a mission to explore seamounts that are ancient. Emil, talk about the importance of corals and sponges in these areas. Well, certainly these deep-sea corals and the sponges that we find at depths of about a mile to a mile and a half deep are like ecosystem engineers. They transform their environment. When they find a suitable substrate or hard bottom to attach to in a favorable area with strong currents that will bring food particles past their filter-feeding bodies, they'll thrive and provide habitat, nurseries, so the, the way a beaver transforms a stream into a pond, these corals and sponges transform a barren seamount into a, a little oasis of life. And if I might take a minute just to give you uh, kind of in a nutshell, the three primary projects that we have going on on this expedition. One is the, the mapping of these areas. Some of these, we had completely different heights for some of these seamounts. The one that we're working on now, it was off by about 1,000 meters from the satellite observation we had before. So we're finding where these things are and all the details. And second, really of interest is the microbial. We're collecting some of these rocks because some of these are totally unique to science. Some may provide genomes and genetic data that we never had before that might be useful for medical purposes. More importantly, what kind of ecological services do these provide to these environments? And then also we are looking at the ages of the rocks. How old are these seamounts and how were they formed? What was the chain of how these seamounts were formed? Hmm. And as we look to the future of this special place, Andy, fill us in on the sanctuary designation that has been initiated. Well, right now, the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument has some pretty strong protections in place. You know, we have a multi-agency management structure that includes Fish and Wildlife Service and the state and the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. But many of the protections in place for Papahanaumokuakea were through executive orders, which are where basically a president can issue an executive order to designate an area as a monument. But those protections aren't necessarily as lasting as other protections like a national marine sanctuary. So right now, we are considering a designation of a national marine sanctuary for the entire marine waters of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. What that could bring is much more strong and lasting protections for this area because national marine sanctuaries have very stringent laws about bottom modification, also enforcement of any type of illegal activity. In December, we're going to hold four public meetings. It's going to be virtual, so anybody can participate. And if you go to our website, papahanaumokuakea.gov, you will see this information about how you can provide comments, 
or how you can attend one of these meetings. So please, we hope that the public does provide comments and participate in this for lasting protections for this place for this generation and many future generations to come. Wow, the time is flowing by. Emil, before we go, anything else you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I hope everybody recognizes that, as the great Sylvia Earle has said, no blue, no green. If we don't have healthy oceans, there's no life on Earth. And so we are intimately tied to healthy oceans and encourage everybody to at least tune in, if not uh, live. While we're diving, you can go back and look on the Nautilus Live website and, and look at a playback of the dive and just see how amazing this last great frontier on Earth really is. That is quite the expedition underway, and you can get a look at a live look at this, nautiluslive.org. Sponges and corals making guest appearances on camera today on that live coverage. Our guides today for this, EV Nautilus team leader Emil uh, Petruzio and education coordinator Andy Collins talking with the conversation's Lillian Song. Andy, by the way, is also a member of HPR's Community Advisory Board. Their expedition runs through December 6th, and again, you can see that on nautiluslive.org. We'll also post links to watch the live dives on our website. Look for that this afternoon at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that is it for today's program. Tomorrow, we'll be taking a closer look at conservation in the islands. We would love to hear from you. It's a call-in show about how to fund a green future. Got ideas? We'd love to hear them. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.